You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. My name is Daniel Nguyen, or Nguyen Hoi Daniel. Uh, my Vietnamese name is uh, Nguyen Hoi Thien. Uh, and currently I'm the founder and uh, CEO of Songkai Distillery in Vietnam. Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over the world. Being Vietnamese to me today means having a connection uh, with the country of Vietnam. And the reason why I say this is it, it's, it's really quite complex uh, to define what it means to be Vietnamese. But I think to me, someone who's Vietnamese is someone who has some sort of a family lineage uh, connected to the place of Vietnam as it is today. Um, or, yeah, so that's 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 what I think it means to be Vietnamese. What was it like growing up for you? Uh, so I grew up in Southern California. I was born in Fountain Valley. I grew up in Westminster. And I think growing up in Southern California at that time was actually quite unique uh, looking back. So I grew up in Southern California in the 80s and the 90s. And... I didn't realize the context of everything until I went to college and read research papers that analyzed the situation of my childhood. And I thought it was actually quite uh, interesting. And not only at that point, I became conscious of how it was so different perhaps from what is considered the greater America. So, um, you know, live, growing up in Westminster, and this is kind of context for people who haven't been to Westminster, it's, it's one of the most concentrated populations of Vietnamese people outside of Vietnam. And it wasn't until I was very far along in elementary school that I realized that Vietnamese people were not the, minor, uh, were not the majority in America. So I actually thought that Toyota was a Vietnamese company, you know, so all the things that we consider traditionally Vietnamese, I, or, or stereotypical of what our parents did, I thought was just every day, you know, um, and it wasn't until I remember doing a college or um, an elementary school project where the uh, teacher uh, gave an assignment to, to all the students to bring your favorite uh, fruit to, to, to present. And my favorite fruit at that time was mango um, or cherry moya. And so I brought that to, to, to class and she said, this isn't a fruit. I said, like, what do you mean it's not a fruit? Everyone I know eats this. So at that point, I started to, to realize that, you know, growing up Vietnamese in America is actually quite different than what America as a whole is used to. And I think that's uh, in a way what I would describe growing up in Westminster is like, as you grow up in this bubble, um, where there's so many Vietnamese people and there's so many Mexican immigrants that 
you start you, you have a distorted view on what society in America is like, and it, it shapes you in a way. And it wasn't until middle school when my family started going to like places like Huntington Beach. So Huntington Beach is next door to, to Westminster. Um, but I always remember there's a hill. So I grew up on uh, Edinger and Magnolia. And that hill that you get over to get into Bellaterra was like a hill that we never crossed. Um, and I don't think it was like on purpose. I think there was just not many Vietnamese people or stores or restaurants over there at that time. Um, but when we started going over there, I mean, like, I think one of the vivid memories I had also was um, in elementary or in middle school, uh, I was biking on that side and I got jumped by a bunch of uh, Caucasian teenagers, so white teenagers, and they stole my bike. Um, you know, and I think that was one of the first times I remember being called like, you know, chink and gook and all that kind of stuff. So I think it, when you're asking like, what, what was it like growing up? I think like there was that West, Westminster kind of like home and from like, you know, bubble. But then when you step outside of that, you start to realize that, wow, we are, you know, this is a whole nother world in which we're not the majority. Um, and there's so many things to deal with, you know, and the, the, I can go on and on about that. Once you get into high school, you start meeting other Asians. So I started making, you know, Taiwanese and Japanese friends in, in high school and then, you know, seeing how all that plays out. So I think growing up in, in, in Southern California, we were surrounded a lot by Vietnamese culture, but then also not at the same time. So I think the last point I would make is even though you grew up in Westminster, you're not always raised up to be um, Vietnamese. So I think uh, I have about probably over a dozen, almost 20 um, uh, cousins on my mother's side, and I'm the only one that speaks Vietnamese. Um, I've got cousins who are in the you know, 40s and 50s who don't speak Vietnamese. And it was a prevailing mentality that we were going to be raised very American. And I remember this clearly because in the first grade, my uh, teacher, Mrs. Gibson, put me into ESL and that I think shocked my parents. And I think from then on, no more Vietnamese in the household. It was completely English. So, so I would say those are the things I would, I, that stick out to me being raised uh, in Westminster is surrounded by Vietnamese things but not being cognizant of it, and then also not being raised intentionally to become Vietnamese, um, I think. So that's, that's, that's what I would say in my own experience. Wow, and the fact that you now live in Vietnam, I mean, that's a whole other um, thing that we'll get into, but um, I, I wanna go back to that whole Cherimoya thing. I couldn't shake it. I'm like, yeah. well, well, okay, when, when, when she said it, it's not a fruit, I mean, what was your reaction at that time? Uh, my, my reaction was actually shock. I think the first thing that uh, any uh, young person will do at a certain point um, is also question. So I think uh, my first, I remember after that actually was uh, going home and asking my parents. And my parents didn't have a strong reaction, or at least I don't remember. Because I remember the next time we went to a, um, a supermarket, I went and I, I tried to search for, for Cherry Moya because I have to show that this is, and this is before iPhone, so you can't just take a picture of it. Yes. So I just remember going to, I think it was like ABC Market or something like that. And I went next day and said, you can go to the grocery store and it's there, Cherry Moya, because I, at that time I didn't know that it was Cherry Moya uh, because my, my mom had a, a mountain goat tree in the backyard that she would self-pollinate every single year. So that's all I knew 
that it was and we never had to go buy it. But I remember seeking that out the next time we went to the supermarket trying to find out there was an English name. And I found it was Cherimoya. And Cherimoya is not even, it's, it's not even English. I think it's, is it Spanish? Mm-hmm. I think it's either Spanish or, uh, or French. I don't remember. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so that's, that's, that's kind of my, my running with that. Um, and I thought it was very, very interesting. It's still something that, I, I, that sticks with me today. <laughs> so. Yeah, that would, that would really stick with me too. Something like that. I'm, I would, yeah, I, I think it would flip out and just go off on the teacher. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so when, when you got to college, what did you study? I, when I got to college, I started studying, I studied a lot of things. I ended up sticking with biology and environmental uh, studies. Um, but I also, at a certain point, um, did a minor in philosophy and a, malign, uh, and a minor in, um, in music theory. Um, so I, I, I played guitar for the school um, ensemble for, for a year or two. Um, and then, but then, yeah, philosophy and, and music theory, but that didn't really stick because, you know, uh, practicality speaking, paying off student debts, you're not going to make but, much money. Being a but, but Daniel, let's, let's talk about that. You, you said it didn't stick, but it does stick. Cause if you yeah. think about it, right. It's, it's this liberal arts. It's this way of thinking that really allows you to kind of bind the technical side of like bio with sort of the expansion of, you know, the things that you've done in your life, right. You, it gives you this sort of foundation to see the world in a very different place when you do embark on music and do embark on philosophy, it gives you just a more expanded view of, you know, go back to Vietnam and you, you have a sort of a broader understanding of like what needs to happen. Yep. Absolutely. I, I, I completely agree. I think I don't regret at all uh, delving into philosophy and music theory and other, and other subjects. I actually think that, for me, I feel very fortunate um, for my college years because my college years were cut short. Um, I graduated early uh, in three and a half years instead of four. Um, but I think those three and a half years were very formative in my intellectual development. Um, and I, I think that's really the, the, the value that you can, you can get out of university. I think that's, that's one of the things that's being questioned nowadays is what is the value of a university degree, especially with the money and the debt people go into. But I think if you really open yourself to that kind of intellectual exploration, I think a university is very valuable. Yeah, I, I debate that with my brother. We, we both go back and forth all the time. Um, as guys who uh really did not want to go to college my brother and i did not i think we graduated high like under 3.0 gpas for sure right we just weren't really geared up for this my parents didn't really push that on us we look back and we're like well we ended up going um and we're both you know um have pursued post uh you know just graduate degrees and but now it's you know we we really question it and to to talk about that experience that you have, um, it being very formative, uh, it really does inform a lot of our viewpoint, but you have to really apply yourself. And that's the really the key thing. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's it's a lot of it is here and miss. I think as most things are in life, I think most things are made great by the people who are 
with you along that experience. I think I was very fortunate to have great professors. I can imagine if I didn't have good professors in the beginning, I would probably be much more disinterested in, in, in college. And then also, I think um, I was also fortunate to have very, uh, I guess, intellectually curious peers at that time. And honestly, if I didn't go to college, because college was where I had the first seed planted uh, about learning Vietnamese and exploring deeper what it means to be Vietnamese. So I think that's that's one of the reasons why I think I still have a very uh, fond and very strong emotional connection to college because much of who I am today is still rooted in college. Um, and even more so than, than say like graduate degrees, um, for, for me at least, my graduate studies was less uh, based on personal connections, but whereas my personal connections in college were very strong. Uh, but I, I, I definitely agree that I think that I, I find myself, even with my staff now, I'm not always 100% on the side of going to college. Mm. I think if you go into it wanting to, to, to have that intellectual exploration, great. But if you're going into it trying to, to get some trade skills or something very practical that you can apply right away, I would advise against it. That's, that's, that's the thing. I think that's not where you want to be getting a university degree. What did you think that you were going to be doing after you got uh, through your education? I, well, before I graduated, I was working for a company called the La Jolla Bioengineering Institute. So I was a university research technician and there was a couple things I was thinking about doing. So one, uh, if you could imagine, so this, this place, and this was before I graduated, it was, it was you know, guaranteed job after graduation and I, my research was going to be on uh, malaria and osteoporosis, so bone density. Um, but I worked in, so if you've seen the movie Resident Evil, so Resident Evil is this you know, sci-fi uh, sci movie with zombies and you know, evil corporations and all that. So the thing that always gets me about this, this, this movie is it was, it was a lot like my work experience. So you go into this, uh, it was a beautiful building. It was overlooking the ocean, La Jolla is right next to the ocean. Um, so it's two stories above ground. So that's what you see when you're driving and you're getting to the, the, the Institute. So all employees, what we were working at, um, so all the executives, they were all the offices above ground. So when we got to the first floor, we'd get into this elevator and this elevator would take us three stories below the, the ground, the surface. So it was like the, the, the whole Resident Evil scene where um, the main protagonist goes to this mansion, is a two-story mansion, but then eventually there's an elevator going down. And you go down and you go you, three stories and you go into this chamber and it's a sterilization chamber. And then you put in on your, you know, your white lab coat and whatnot. Everyone has a separate research room and every research room is password collect, uh, protected. There's no windows in or out. And it's protect us against PETA, essentially, is what the executive said, because wow. we, did, we did animal testing. Um, so I was in charge of, at any given time, 300 lab mice, or yeah, 300 lab mice. So I had to breed them, I had to uh, perform surgery on them, and I had to uh, send off the data, essentially. <laughs> uh, so... And if you can imagine doing that day in and day out. So when you come into the office, you know, the sun's barely rising, go down into the, the, the you know, three stories into the basement. When you come up, basically the sun's gone. 
and I and you don't work with anyone. You 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 know you end up starting to talk to the mice because there's there's no one there. So I did that for about a year, and I said, you know, this is not for me. I'm not cut out to to do this for years trying to form the you know climb the ladder to maybe get like an above ground office maybe 10 years down the line um so i eventually became a paramedic um and i thought that was going to be a great job but then i ended up moving to new orleans and when i got to new orleans the city had undergone budget cuts so most of the paramedics and the fire department had gone into volunteer status so and you know that's a whole nother story, but that's that's what I thought I was going to be doing after I graduated was either I can be staying a bioengineer or I can pivot into something else. And I thought, why not try being like an EMT or a paramedic? That would be a very interesting uh, line of work, and at least while I'm young, give me a lot of really interesting stories, which it did. It, it was a lot of very interesting experience, and changes my perspective completely on the 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 state of the American uh, public health and health system. <laughs> that, that That's an, an hour or two conversation there. Yeah, that, that, that's a whole, I mean, there's some really crazy stories. I mean, we, we had a lot of calls that were insane. I mean, I, my first call was a, uh, was a pediatric call, was a, was a young kid, uh, toddler going into cardiac arrest and I remember sweating so much I was so nervous you know because first call they're like oh it's uh, pediatric I was like oh god you know I, if I remember all the things like what do I have to perform CPR on a kid because real life CPR is not fun real not life pretty. CPR basically yeah. you have to crack all the bones you know um, so it's it's I think that's really jarring or like we had an, uh, a case where one guy was so obese, we couldn't carry him up off the basement. And we were just like, you know, if you can't get up and walk, you're basically going to die. And I thought that was depressing. Or I had another um, domestic case abuses are the worst, I think. Absolute worst. Because eventually, most domestic case victims end up going back. And then you can oftentimes, two weeks down the line, be at the same address, you know. So... Anyways, that whole line of work was 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 really interesting, uh, to say the least. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I've always fantasized about doing EMT paramedic work too because I I just love things that involve that kind of action, right? Like you you know, as a young person, you think that that that's fun. Yeah. Until it, it until it's not fun. Yeah, until it's not fun. It's I think like you know when you're when you know. Kobu and you're, you're, you know, the lights are on and, you know, you're, you're sitting, you're hitting, you're, you're sitting in the back seat and things are jumping up and down. You're like, oh man, this is really cool. You know? And then until you like, you know, you process everything, stuff goes by in a blur, like every single shift, I think every single shift without a doubt, I just come home, just knock out. I was so tired because you have, you're running on adrenaline almost the entire, you know, it was basically, we were on 12 to 24 hour shifts. Uh, so you were just on so much adrenaline, you wouldn't be able to sleep like a full eight hours. You'd be just like any second, another call would come and you're just like, oh, you know, and, but you don't get time to process until you're off on your, your downtime. And you're like, whoa, that's really crazy stuff we did, uh, you know, and you get desensitized to it. Um, I remember one of the guys we, uh, that I work with, he just had on his phone, just like a log of pictures of all the crazy stuff he's seen. You know, 
like you would just like show everyone oh yeah look at this this guy has like a butcher knife hanging out of his stomach or whatever you know it's like you know I, I see why people, you have to cope with it in a way, you know, and it turns into this kind of dark comedy in a way. <laughs> yeah. So. That's still one thing that I regret not having uh, experienced in my life. That That's always, when I see uh, ambulances drive by, I'm like, oh man, I should have right? done that, you know, just at least for one year, you know, how long did you do it for? I, I think I did it for about a year as well. And I, because yeah. I, it's, it's very tiring and unfortunately that job does not have a lot of growth potential you you max out pretty quickly and your decline is very fast because all it takes is for you to pull your back one time and you're done mm. um so that's 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 a really rough one um so those guys are completely you know every, the, the people in the ems field i feel like are very unappreciated um, in, in the country. I think they don't get paid enough for what they do and they don't have enough benefits to cover them. I think that's one of the, the travesties behind everything. Um, everything's understaffed. So in theory, you learn in school, you know, if every ambulance is supposed to have however many people, every, you know, fire engine is supposed to have however many people. In reality, it's not like that. In reality, it's like, you're, you know, that's probably maybe like two thirds if you're lucky of that staffing level. So it's, it's really quite uh, sad, I think, the state of it. Um, but yeah, I, it's never too late because people, they're always understaffed. So if you ever want to live that dream, um, I'm sure that that there's always opportunities, but it's again, it's a, uh, it's a very um, tough uh, industry in terms of longevity. Yeah, I can imagine. It's like a young person's game almost too. Absolutely, it is, it is. So. What, what happens next? What happens after the EMT experience? Um, so I ended up in New Orleans. I worked in the food and beverage industry for a while. Uh, so I worked for the Besh restaurant group. They no longer exist. Uh, Besh was caught up in um, many years down the line, so very recently in, 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 in some scandals. So that company group doesn't exist anymore. Um, and then I uh, worked in community development. And so in 2010, so this is all very serendipitous. So in, in, in 2010, um, I was we were living in New Orleans at the time. So then the BP oil spill happened. And I remember a great friend of mine um, called me and said, you know, we need, we need Vietnamese interpreters. Because um, the oil spill in 2010 was a deep water horizon oil spill. It, um, I think it was, I believe, 81 days straight where there was a oil spill that just bled out into the Gulf, um, uncapped, and completely destroyed the livelihoods of the fisheries, as well as the ecosystem and, 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 and you know, other effects. Um, so most people don't know is in the Gulf, uh, when I'm talking about the Gulf, I'm talking about Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi, all the way to like even the, the east side of Texas and to the west, westernmost point of Florida, is in the fisheries industry, uh, two thirds of the shrimping vessels are Vietnamese owned. Um, and one third, it's an estimated one third of the Vietnamese along the Gulf Coast are employed in one way or another in the fisheries industry. So whether it's actually going out in the ocean, on the docks, processing, or some way, some form associated with the fisheries. Uh, so we were heavily impacted as a community. And when the government started rolling out these, these recovery programs, you know, they were all in English, essentially. So they we needed to have representation. So that, that, that catapulted me into community development work in that area. So for a long time, I worked in um, 
recovery efforts. So making sure that people got fair compensation um, from the, the, the government programs um, and from the, the, the corporation itself, so BP. Um, and then moving from that was doing two things, was work on economic development and then also environmental, um, what we called it at the time was environmental justice. So there was a lot of things going on prior to that from Katrina. So for example, um, New Orleans East is very um, notorious for having had the, uh, the Chef Mentor landfill incident. So the Chef Mentor landfill incident was after Katrina, Mayor Nagan using emergency powers had placed a landfill less than two miles away from the Vietnamese community in New Orleans East. And it was connected to the main body of water going through that community. And so the community fought long and hard. They got the, the landfill shut down. However, all the trash and debris was not removed. So my, my work was taking over from the person who was working on that before on filing a lawsuit against that and trying to get all the, 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 uh, the trash removed. And then on top of that, with the oil spill, was we were working with Tulane University and Washington State University on doing long-term monitoring to see the health impacts of the oil spill, the environmental impacts. And then on the economic side, we were funded by foundations and some government grants to, to figure out what was the best way to, to, to stimulate economic recovery or create jobs for people in the fisheries. Because when people are displaced in the fisheries, one, they tend to be, um, uh, what do you call, basically, they're more accustomed to manual labor. So the fisheries industry is mostly laborers who are accustomed to manual labor. Um, and especially with, with the Vietnamese community, our community, there's also a limited English proficiency uh, factor. So one of the pilot projects we did was agriculture. Um, so we started a veggie farmers cooperative. We did uh, tofu making, we did soy milk making, we grew produce and doing a cooperative, we were able to pool together capital to, to buy equipment, to buy processing facility, to rent larger plots of land. And then what we did was we built a vertical supply chain direct to all the restaurants, hotels, and supermarkets. Um, and that way the farmers can get more money than they would uh, selling piecemeal. And so can, that I stop, can I stop you right there? Yeah. Doing that vertical uh, creation for that community sounds mm -hmm. like a massive undertaking. Who led the project? Who taught you? Who was the orchestrator of that um, that whole structure? The way that it was introduced to that community. So I I led the project. Um, the it, it sounds fancy, but when we first started, it was me going around by myself with a minivan and buying produce and putting it in Ziploc bags and coolers. And I still have pictures on my phone today or either on my phone or on Facebook from way back when, when I started taking pictures and just, just lugging around ice chests, knocking on doors of restaurants and trying to see anyone who would sit down and say, hey, would you buy this from us essentially? That was, it, it wasn't going to distributors. It wasn't going to, to, to any other uh, middleman. It was just, we're going to do it ourselves. So the model was actually something I'd learned from college. Um, so this is, I think, one of the things I learned a lot in university was I worked, uh, while I was a student, I worked for a cooperative. And, um, and, you know, in economics and things like that, we studied different models. But one of the things I found interesting was 
Um, one was a cooperative model uh, where it was a much more democratically organized system and you can pool together resources. And I found that, you know, we learn about it a lot in the context of agriculture. I think agriculture is one of those fields where cooperatives are still used today just because agriculture is so limited in terms of, of, for example, you need to have land for you to have a meaningful say in things. So small farmers by themselves can't compete with conglomerates unless they all come together essentially. Um, so I think that was a model that, that I wanted to use because I knew it was going to reduce the barrier of entry. In terms of a vertically integrated system, that again, you also learn a lot in terms of studying cooperatives. There's different types of cooperatives. There's production cooperatives. So it's like different farmers pulling together resources so they can actually produce a greater volume as a, as a, as a collective. Or there's marketing cooperatives. So what essentially that is, is if you are a farmer and I'm a farmer and I can't get access to a bigger buyer, there's going to be a cooperative that pulls together our resources again to go connect to the bigger buyers for us or to negotiate on our behalf, essentially. Um, so the, the cooperative that we set up was a hybrid model. So it was getting all the people in the community, community to pitch in with whatever they were going to grow. And we would go negotiate directly to the, to the restaurants on their behalf um, instead of going through a, a, a middle person. And then we would also do production planning. So when we, when we did that, we would understand the lay of the land. So what restaurants wanted, what bars wanted, what supermarkets wanted. Um, so that we would be able to produce a, a, a plan for the farmers in our, in our cooperative, like this is what we should be growing. This is what we should be growing this amount, for example. And this is kind of the price point we would get. So then people would start to get a forecast of one, what they would grow, two, uh, what their expenses are, and three is what their projected revenue would be. And that's a lot of stability that, that generally farmers are not afforded. Daniel, um, there's not a lot of money in doing that as I'm running the numbers in my head right now. Yeah. What, what made you do this? I mean, what, what propelled you to do this for the community? Uh, well, I think... I think there's a lot of reasons. I think there's there's one is I think it's the right thing to do. I think it's uh, the necessary thing to do. I think there, there's there's a point in time I think that that people uh, you know my mentor at the time was a was a gentleman named Father Vien and he he uh, or Vien and he was the head pastor at the time of Mary Queen of Vietnam Church and he was so instrumental in the post Katrina de, de recovery. And we would have a lot of late night meetings over dinner and just talk about life. Um, he's no longer in the United States, he's in the Philippines now. Um, but I think one of the things that he taught me was oftentimes we are not given a choice of what we want to do, but we are given rather a situation where we choose to do the right necessary thing or we run. So it's fight or flight essentially. Um, and I think that's that's kind of my my instinct was this is this is something you have to do and it's the right thing to do because if we don't do it, either you know we we are expect I think one of the fallacies the logical fallacies is if we don't it's the bystander effect right we always have this idea that if we don't do it oh someone else will do it for example I don't think that's the case because I think like we see that for example New Orleans East is such a forgotten community. I mean, now it's not the case, but when we when I first got there, it was still reeling from the effects of Katrina. Whereas when Katrina came up with the redevelopment plan, they left out New Orleans East completely. Uh, so the Vietnamese community wasn't even on the map or wasn't even in the plan or even considered. And it was turned into this, 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 this landfill. So I, 
it came to me, it dawned upon me more and more that the bystander effect doesn't apply to us as a community because if we don't do it, we will get swept away. And I think that was a, a fight or flight moment where you have to stand and, and draw a line in the sand. And I think the other aspect is I, I, I'm very scientific in a way. I have a lot of ideas and theories. And my, my main thing is how do we test those theories and see if they work? And there's such a adrenaline that you get from putting something into, mm. from theory into something material, seeing it emerge and then seeing if it fails or not and then learning and growing from that. And I think that was so exhilarating when we, we went from this idea, we went from one uh, minivan to now we actually bought like a delivery van. Uh, you know, we were selling tofu, you know, we were all, it was, it was amazing. And then seeing people invigorated and, and, and people who wanted to hear the story. So the, those are things I think that, that for me kept me going also in the long run was, was seeing the results, seeing how we change people's lives. But the, the initial thing was fight or flight. Like, I think that's when you realize the type of person you are. And I, I realized at that moment that I could have run and gone like maybe back to California, but I think that there was something in me that said, you know, we, we, you have to do it. Otherwise, no one else will do it. I think that's that's the key thing. Who, who are your parents? What did they who, do? Who are my yeah, yeah. I mean, did you yeah. were you influenced by one one parent in the way that you think in terms of this whole fight or flight, stay back, or was uh, philosophy uh, in college something that sort of allowed you sort of this insight to stay back? Because I know me if that when I was your age at that time, I would have bounced. I'd be like, okay, fight or flight, I'm out of here because this is there's no money here, you know. And as I'm living and I'm learning more, uh, you're right. We don't do it. It's not going to be done. So I want to know what influenced you, what caused you to to think this way. I I don't know. I I think like so my parents. So my 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 dad. Uh, lived a very interesting adolescence. So he, his, so his father, so my Ongdoi is from Huangbin, my Banoi. So his mother, my grandmother is from Hui. He grew up in Dalat and he went to seminary school. So he was supposed to be a priest. And at that time, that was a big deal because, you know, room and board, everything is, 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 is paid for. Um, and when he fled Vietnam in 1975, that went out the window and he single-handedly raised his, um, the family. My mother's family is completely different. So she is, her family is originally from the north, uh, from Ningbing in Hanoi. And then she grew up in Saigon. So she was born and raised in Saigon. So she's a Baknambu. She um, was a, a university student and she um, taught at, uh, she was a faculty at, uh, I can't remember the university anymore, but essentially she, she taught literature and poetry um in vietnam and she she left vietnam in 1981 um to to come to the u.s i think their lives in vietnam impact me less than their lives in the u.s because i think the the thing that i remind myself a lot is the hardships i may face today is not comparable to the hardships my parents face so <laughs> going to a, a country where you don't speak the language starting over from scratch uh your college degree no, means nothing um, your education means nothing. You know, my dad had to start over from scratch. My mother had to start over from scratch. And then building up completely. I think that, I think, to me, 
is something I, I remind myself on a day-to-day -day basis. I think, um, you know, starting your own business, running a business is quite difficult and stressful, but I still think that I'm in a position where I'm doing it because I love it. Whereas I think my parents were doing it out of a necessity. I think doing something out of necessity is completely do different from doing something because you, you want to do something. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that that's still, even in New Orleans, I think that that was always the case where I always had the option that I could always quit if I wanted to. Um, whereas the people that we were working with didn't have that option. I think that's um, something that drives me um, actually quite a bit is this perspective. Because I think in New Orleans, there's such a fixation around the concept of transplants where people will come and they'll leave quite quickly. Um, I think that's also, yeah, that's why I also thought that, you know, you have to draw a line in the sand, essentially, but you're right, that work doesn't have a lot of money in it. So <laughs> I think that's also one of the reasons why you don't see a lot of people doing it. Um, and I think that's also why you see, unfortunately, um, a lot of these stories don't get, um, I don't know what it is. I, I, they don't get documented and they, they're not known about because these communities will disappear eventually. I think one of the hard things that uh, uh, the conversations that I have is the all things point to the direction that these communities will no longer exist in another couple of generations, maybe maybe even one generation. The fisheries industry is not really, you know, booming anymore. Um, New Orleans East is not technically very, you know, booming economically. People are, the young people are leaving. They're not coming back, for example. So it's all these forces greater than us. But even then, like the idea of temporality, so how long something lasts does not diminish the value of something. So I think that's, that's still, there is something to be said about that community. I mean, every Saturday morning, there is still a judge of home where the older generations goes out, it's, it's completely outdoors. People are still squatting and selling stuff that they, they grow, Vietnamese produce, you know, people in the, the Mexican Guatemalan community. And it's just, it's, it's mostly a, a communal thing. Yes, there is money exchange, but it's so, you know, it's just because there should be money exchange, but really it's a, a place of bonding community. That to me, I think, I never really saw in, in California. Yes, there were flea markets, but it was never this tight-knit community coming together every Saturday and, you know, most everything was homemade. So that was something that was, I think, very inspiring and touching. And really does, I think, has changed me a lot in terms of my idea of what a community could be. Yeah, I mean, I have studied your website for Songkai Jin, and I see that. I see now the traces of your time spent in the community um, with these farmers, with this community, with the um, projects that you've, you've just described. I get it now. I, I look at it and I'm, you know, when I see images like that, it, it always draws me to think about what inspired the creator or the founder to sort of move in this sort of direction. And I can see it now. I can trace the lineage of your experience back to um, your time in, in, in the South. Yeah, I, I definitely think that that's, that's definitely a formative uh, part of my life is, is New Orleans. That's definitely a, a place I will never forget. And it's a place that I try and come back to frequently to, to, to pay homage to. How, how long were you there for? I was there for probably six years, I think. And, and yeah. what, what uh, propelled you to move on to the next stage? 
I think the it was risk. I, I think it was it was a, a leap of faith because it was because of New Orleans I got the opportunity to come back to Vietnam. So in 2012, uh, the uh, the Oxfam America, the American Wetlands Foundation, uh, had a joint agreement with the uh, the Vietnamese Ministry of uh, Natural Resources and Environment to basically look at developing a sustainable development program or plan for the Mekong Delta, because the two most vulnerable deltas in the world to climate change are the Mekong Delta and the, the Gulf of Mexico. Um, so there's so many similarities in terms of rapid sea level rise, the heavily dependence on fisheries and agriculture in that area that's gonna be impacted mostly rural and agrarian communities, for example, um, being downstream from everything. So we're connected to the Mississippi um, waterways, whereas in, in the Mekong Delta is the Mekong waterways, you know, going through, you know, Laos and China. Um, so there's so many similar geopolitical issues as well. Uh, so in 2012, I actually didn't want to go. They, they, I think they, they, they asked me three times, they're like, you got to go, you got to go. It's like all expenses paid. And so I eventually went and I just completely, it was just so enamoring um, because Vietnam is such a distant concept. Even though I work every day in a Vietnamese community, going to a place where it's the actual country is completely different. And that opened my mind to potentially coming back. So every single year at that, from that point, I went back to Vietnam until I decided to move back. And I, the reason why I decided to move back was I had a job offer um, to do... Um, uh, supply chain development, sustainable supply chain development and sustainable development in the Mekong Delta. Um, but it was like, it was uh, for $500 a month, I think it was. And my mom was like, I, I literally, I remember when I told my mom that she just broke down, she started crying. She thought I had like, uh, be my boy. So <laughs> I, she thought I went back and like some girl like put a spell on me. And now I'm just like, put, like throwing away my life and going to like absolute desolate poverty. <laughs> Wait, you know? wait, wait. So wait, the job offer was for $500 a month? Yes. And wait, this was 2013? 2014, 2015. Yep. Wait so, a minute. So wait, 2014, you actually take a job yeah. for $500 a month? Yes. And the, the reason why was I, there was so many things that, that, that I was considering as one, at that time, I was still in my 20s. I was single. I didn't have a family. I was in good health. My parents were in good health and I had paid off my student debts. And I thought if I didn't get to study abroad and I thought how much of the world, do you know, and how much do you, do you know about yourself if you've never lived or put yourself outside of your comfort zone? And I thought this is this is it. Like, if you're going to do it, you're going to do it now. You can't wait until you're 30. You never know. In two years, you might find out you have like, you know, I don't know, uh, multiple sclerosis or something like debilitating like that. So I decided, why not? You know, and I, I sold everything that I had. It was actually quite a quick leaving, but I left and I, I ended up taking this job. Yeah, for $500 a month, um, which for everyone who's listening is $500 a month is actually a little bit, it is pretty much average, the, 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 the average wage that someone could find in um, Saigon, Ho Chi Minh City at that time. So, um, I mean, maybe even a little bit above average. So, so 
it wasn't like you were living in poverty, but definitely you're not going to be living the expat lifestyle. You know? No, <laughs> not five. No, months. absolutely not. Not in 2014. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, you know, it's funny. I, I didn't even now until, until, until I started some guy, I think that was like this, my wage stayed stagnant through all the different jobs I've worked in Vietnam. So <laughs> I, I know guys who were spending that much on dinners in 2014 in Vietnam. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so I was the, I remember going and meeting other BQs and being like, man, I am like the, well, <laughs> you know. <laughs> oh, God. I can understand why your mom uh, bro broke down and cried. I, I would freak out too if my son uh, came back and told me that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was, it was very gutsy. I think, I think it, I was very fortunate that it worked out the way it did. Um, Cause I, I think that to me, uh, $500 a month, yes, is not glamorous. Um, but I think the, the experience that I, I was able to access was incredible. I think that, I think that to me is like, I, I wouldn't be able to even purchase that if I wanted to, you can't actually. Um, and I think, there's so many things that I was able to do, see, and just live um, during my time doing that, that, that I think that I would never have been able to do otherwise. Like, I, I think if you had a nicer job uh, that you would not be able to do, go out to the rural countryside in that depth. Um, and I think to me, when I, when I speak to a lot of expats and BQs, it seems to be an, an experience that's completely unavailable um even if you want to seek it out like how do you even begin so i think that to me i think that was something i i forever grateful for um and i try not to forget uh those experiences uh uh in in the work that we do and this was with oxfam uh no this was with other vietnamese companies or institutes so i worked for I think I worked for, I worked on three different things. And I, uh, the, so I worked for a uh, for-profit in Ho Chi Minh City, Saigon, two of them. And then I, I, I left, actually. I, I only stayed in the South for, I think, a year or two. And then I immediately had this opportunity to go to the highlands of Vietnam. And I thought, wow, this is what I've been reading about. And this is what we've been studying. And I, this is what I, I definitely want to do. And so I, I took a job with this institute, and this institute was about studying and advising on policy around forest land allocation. And this is completely fascinating, and, and, and I think it's a subject that I think not many Americans at all know. Some Americans in the natural resources industry and field really do understand this, and they think it's, it's quite fascinating. So this is a little bit of a sidetrack, but Vietnam has a very interesting land law. Um, so I know we're, we're, we're a Vietnam community and the, the topic of politics in Vietnam is always touchy, but it's something that's unavoidable. And I think I, I'm, I'm going to present it in a way that's as objective as possible. Um, so Vietnam is a socialist republic. And in that sense, they have a very different set of values from say the United States. So in 1988, there was the decollectivization of, of Vietnam. So it used to be the Soviet system right where the government owns all the land um in 1988 with you know with the the collapse of the soviet U union basically inevitable and looming they decided to decollectivize and start to explore the idea of private property 
And so what that eventually meant was every single household in Vietnam got land for free. Uh, and that's something that when you put that in perspective is giving everyone a completely different starting ground than the United States. We have to look at, you, when you understand that, you understand why Vietnam is the way it is and why people are able to live the way that people live now on maybe less than $500 a month because all of their families own outright the land that they live on in the countryside. So they don't have to worry about paying rent right. or things like that. So that being said, a part of the land law was forest land allocation because most of Vietnam is actually forest. And so how do you allocate that land? So it's not as simple as, okay, you know, Kenneth and Daniel, you know, your two households, you get the same amount of land. Well, okay, but what happens if your family is bigger than mine? What happens if I want to live more downstream and you want to live more up in the mountains? Who gets what kind of land, you know? So the system of that is continually evolving. So the, the, the work that I was doing was going and seeing what was going on in actuality, how people live and the community values and how the government policy can change to more reflect that. Um, so for example, we, we, you know, when you're looking at forest land allocation, say for example, in the Thang Nguyen area, the Central Highlands, right? Um, you have a lot of uh, different ethnic communities like the Hurray, the Gazong, um, uh, you know, the Jirai, the Koha um, peoples out there. Um, and they don't always adhere to the, the concept of private property. What that means is traditionally, say for example, the Hurray tribe and say like the, the Kantum area, um, so say for example, the Boe area, they traditionally looked at land as a communal thing. So when the government came in and said, everyone gets land for free, well, then you have to split people up into households. And then those people will now have to have a piece of land. That fundamentally alters the social fabric of a local community. So the result of some of the work that we did was now the government actually gives communal land. So this is, you get household land, but then the community also gets a piece of community land. So you still get this piece of land that the community still calls their collective own. Um, to, to honor that. Or say, for example, um, and this is this is a lot more tricky, is a lot of some of the Northwest communities were no, are and were nomadic. Um, so they they live in the, what they call the Nungze. Um, so when you're doing like Sweden agriculture, when you're up in the mountains, they call it Nungze. So you, you actually live and you sleep up there and then you have a house maybe more downstream. Um, and, but that plot of land changes because a lot of it is, is what you call traditionally slash and burn. Um, slash and burn is, is a very controversial topic, but that means, you, yeah, you, you, one year you're here and the other year you're here. So how do you give someone land if they're not sticking in one place? So there's so many interesting topics that, that that's, that's uh, you know, that you learn about when you're, you're doing this. So that's, that's some of the things that I was able to, to learn about and experience and, and work deeply in that, that I think was very uh, yeah, invaluable. That, that, that is very fascinating because when we out in the US, when we think about the political side of land and distribution of land and the, the ownership of land, yeah. we think of it in a very black and white thing. We don't, there, there's no nuance in that, you know, uh, there's no nuance. It's like, oh, it's, it's communist and it's taken over by the bureaucracy of, of the, of the government. And um, that's it. That's the final word. The actual division 
and the thought out uh, nature of these tribes and these indigenous people and uh, the nuances of, of what they have to kind of experience is completely left off the table for our understanding out here in, in the U.S. Yeah, and I think this, and knowing that there's people on the ground in Vietnam thinking about this, it it's a very unique and special thing that needs to be uh, phobing. Uh, we need to know yes. about this stuff because that means that it's not black and white. Nothing that's happening in the in Vietnam is black and white the way we think it is happening here in the United States. Absolutely. I think it's is I think anywhere in the world, and this is why I also recommend that people spend time abroad outside of the US, is because it gives you a perspective of the US is completely different because things aren't black and white. Are there shortcomings in the Vietnamese system? Yes. Are there pauses that the US can learn from? Is absolutely. And I think that's why these countries have diplomatic relations, because countries ultimately have to understand that there is no black and white. I think as citizens, we can we, we often oversimplify it as black and white, but but people, a part of diplomacy is give and take. You learn something from the, the, the your neighboring country and you also teach something, you know. And I, I often, I think one of the key moments for me was when we took a delegation of indigenous farmers to an overseas conference and they finally realized that they had it much better than other farmers. When you when they met farmers that were in debt in the Philippines that were working on um, basically um, modern day plantations for other landlords, for example, they their perspective changed completely because they're like, wow, the government just gave us this land, you know. And then when they learn from other farmers, like the Native Americans living on reservations in the U.S., completely changed their mind because it was like, wow, like you know, we were given this land and this land was ours for however long we couldn't even remember, you know, whereas, you know, we work with the United Human Nations and they were like, yeah, we were forced down here because of, you know, the trail of tears, you know, so, so I think, are there problems? Yes, there are land disputes in Vietnam and I'm not denying that. And I think I'm not, I'm not trying to, this is where like these kinds of things will land me in trouble, which is fine. Um, but I do realize that there is a lot of issues with Vietnam. And I think that's also a whole nother episode we can go into the problems. Um, but my work specifically was around trying to change and uh, address the land reform. So the, the end of my work was in 2017, where we were actually able to change the, what Bao Vệ Phát Triển Zung is the Forest Land Protection, Protection and Development uh, Law, where we were able to actually put in there a redefinition of spiritual land. So in Vietnam, people think there's no uh, religious freedom. There is, there is, there, it, it's tricky. I think religious freedom anywhere is tricky, um, but in Vietnam, they give out spiritual land. And in the law before 2017, it said spiritual land was anything that was demarcated with a nhạc So a church, like a, a pagoda or a đền miu, so like a, a, a like, an altar, if you will. Most non-king, so Vietnamese people, as we know ourselves as, are we all mostly belong to the king ethnicity. Um, and we're only one of 54. So the other 53 uh, communities, most of them don't demarcate spirituality with a 
So why don't they get to, to have their land designated as spiritual? So that was actually brought into the law. So now the government said, yes, you can be from the Hurray community and you, your, your forest land that you deem spiritual will be recognized as spiritual. So when developers come in, there's, there's lots of different types of lands. There's land zoning in Vietnam. Um, spiritual land is like, good luck trying to touch that, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And then now what I'm thinking about is as you're telling me all this stuff, I'm like, who's leading the charge to protect all of the indigenous people? Like who's leading the charge for all of these rules and regulations, right? Because it just doesn't magically happen. It's not like the will of the people and the government leaders are doing this. There has to be somebody or group of people that are very conscious of what needs to be done correctly and the, in the right way to service and make the people happy. Because it's not just like, we're going to do anything we want and we're just going to bulldoze over your, the way you live. You know, no, 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 no we're going to figure out a way to make everybody happy here. And, and that kind of give and take is a nuance that's entirely lost on people here, Vietnamese Americans or Vietnamese in Europe or Vietnamese in Australia where there's, we don't know the subtleties of, of the communities and the government actually doing great work like that to, to really back up the, the, the people who are living that way. Yeah, and I, I think that this is, this is maybe, I would say this is one of the weaknesses or one of the, one of the critiques I have of Vietnam, Vietnam and its government system is there's not a, a, a plethora or an abundance of public discourse. So the way that things get done, so when we're doing all this forest land allocation and whatnot, there is a give and take between the community and, and the government, but it's not in the public discourse that we are used to in the, in the United States where there's town halls, you can go to the town hall and voice your opinion. Um, you maybe go to the newspaper and the newspaper will, will publish something that is um, a critique of a certain policy. So yes, I, I, I think that there are certain, certain things that I think are accurately portrayed. I think the, the, the media will often reflect the, the party line. So that kind of public discourse doesn't exist. Um, there's no town halls. Um, you're generally going to be, it's, it's a similar kind of electoral system as the US where you don't vote technically directly for the president, but you vote for, you know, your, 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 your local representative and that local representative votes for whoever, whoever. Um, so it's kind of like the electoral system. We actually don't vote for the president. Um, we vote for in the electoral college. Um, however, because there is not really that public discourse, most people aren't used to public debate. So what eventually happens is you have, you, you're, a lot of it rests on the will of the people who are in the system and are at the local level. Um, and this is where you start to see the breakdown. Like there are some localities where people are so idealistic and gung-ho and there's so many things that are done well. And there's some localities where, yeah, I, you know, the guy could care less about what's going on and that place may not develop as well. Um, is it arguably the same in the US? I would say to a certain degree, but I think it's less left to its own than in Vietnam, because I think in, in the US, you're, you're much more open to public discourse and people, if you're disgruntled, you're going to be, you know, you're gonna be writing an editorial, you know, things like that. Um, 
So I think that's where I think Vietnam can learn from the US is how do you open for public discourse? Um, and at what stage in the, in the, in the, uh, the country's uh, development do you do that? That's, that's also up for debate, but, but I think the last time we were, I, was, I was asked about this from, from, from uh, the state media, my, my personal opinion is I think the biggest challenge, one of the biggest challenges that Vietnam will face in the next 20 years, because there's a lofty goal that in 2045, that Vietnam wants to become a middle to, to well-developed country. So right now, Vietnam is no longer considered a poor country, a low-income country. It's like a, it's like a medium-low income country. So the goal of the party is in 2045 that Vietnam will become a well-to-do country, like upper middle class. But my personal opinion, and I've gone on record saying this, is I think the biggest challenge will be human capital. I think human capital is not only on the, the average Joe like you and me, but it's the people who are in the government. They need to reflect the times now, and they need to be brave enough to build a society that is willing to embrace healthy public discourse. Because you can't get out of, Vietnam has experienced tremendous economic growth, absolutely tremendous. It's, it's even surpassed China as the fastest growing economy in history, um, which, which is, numbers don't lie. I think the, 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 the improvement of quality of life is, is staggering. But you will run out of momentum. And because you, in a country's development and alleviating poverty, the first stage is always to exploit natural resources. But natural resources are finite and you need to start to transition. And Vietnam is trying to do that. And the biggest thing that people run into is human capital. And a lot of that is in, in intellect, yeah, intelligentsia. You know, I had a conversation with President Tweeve over at uh, Fulbright University. And uh, yeah. we talked about something that was very enlightening to me, which is in 2005, um, the then prime minister had a, took a trip to, to the U.S. in 2005 and had had a day meeting with um, Larry Summers, the president of Harvard at the time. Yeah. And I apparently from the discussion I had with President Tui, she she said the prime minister asked Larry Summers, you know, how do we build a robust educational system? And I think Larry Summers said, you know, opening up to academic freedom, that's going to really trigger the process of the intelligentsia that you're talking about right now. And um, I think he left there with a changed heart and an open mind. But but just hearing President Tui say that that happened, and then she said in 2013, there was a follow-up with the delegation that I, I apparently was a chain reaction and then they sent the delegation back to the east coast to visit the ivies so more than one person went back to visit the ivies um probably the board of education from vietnam the ministers of education checked out mit harvard and a bunch of ivies and then they came back to do some more re reform so i think as we're talking about this stuff right now this has been in place 15 years ago, if we think about right. it, right? So all of these things are happening and we don't know about it because we just are not, like you said, it's not in the papers. They're not, there's no editorials, but I think on the inside at the upper levels, people are thinking about it in the government. Yes. 
I definitely think so because there, there are signs that people are thinking about it and there, and it is an ongoing issue because I think um, I, I still maintain a lot of uh, some connections with some, some work with the government in terms of, you know, they're, they're working with the government is almost unavoidable to a certain degree in, in Vietnam, but I think it's not the boogeyman that people think, you know, I think they're, it's still run by people, you know, and people have ambitions and they have fears and they have desires. And I think at the end of the day, people are nervous. I think it's, I don't know if nervous is the right way, but there, there's a lot of anticipation because you don't know how things are going to go. Um, and when you're in a system like Vietnam, where there is only pretty much one party, there's a lot more pressure. Like one way to look at it is yes, you, maybe you can look at it the way that we look at it is, is a dictatorship. The other way to look at it that, that I'm just throwing it out there and you know, it, it's a lot more nuanced than that is that it all falls on that one party. Like if it goes up, it goes up because that party, if it goes down, oh yeah, everyone's going down, you know? So, so in that sense, I think that one of the things that I see, and I, you see that a lot with COVID actually, the COVID response, is that the government can tend to be shy. The government, mm. the people in the government will tend to be shy in many, many, many degrees and they react in a very human manner. Mm. Uh, and this we can go on about on different examples I've seen, especially during COVID, is when things work, it's they have a very human response to the government. And when things don't work, they also have a very human response as a government, you know, they're almost like a little, I almost think of the government as like, as like a mom and dad. Like, you know, people talk about all the time, like a nanny state, but I think it's so much more personal here because, you know, very much like mom and dad back in the day, for me at least, it's like, you, our parents raised us in a way that was not about reasoning. It's like, mom and dad tells you to do something, you do it, otherwise, you know, we, you know, <laughs> you know, and I think it's the same way with the Vietnamese government here. It's like, if there's a backlash, their first response is pull back and then bam with the with the stick. You know, if something works well and then you know, boom, everything is like the sky's the limit. They'll make things uh, you know available. So, I think it's so interesting when you only have one party and it's much more of a direct line of communication down. How swift and varied and different the response can and is compared to the U.S. <laughs> Good and bad in both ways. Yeah, yeah, sounds like it. And yeah. I am. Um every day that I do this work of, you know, asking questions, I, I am so fascinated by somebody like you, who, you know, I, I came for the gin. Yeah, you know, I came for the story of the gin, I came to, to hear about the guy who, you know, who's thought about the branding, who's thought about the aromatics. And we're an hour in, and we <laughs> haven't even gotten there yet. But now I have a context of Vietnam, a better, a deeper understanding of Vietnam and, and, and what has been going on since you got there. And it gives me uh, another building block in my arsenal uh, of understanding what is going on. And now I want to transition over into how you got into uh, alcohol. Sure. Um, so, so as I mentioned before, so my, my contract uh, was up for renewal in 2017. So I had a choice was to continue doing these work, this, this work, 
um, and you know, taking on different government contracts uh, to pilot economic development or to, to transition and do something on my own. And, and I ultimately transitioned to do something on my own. I think um, one of the things that I found was one, the government has its limitations. I think the government's roles come up with policy but when it comes to doing stuff like state-owned enterprises, which doesn't exist in, in, in America for a large part, um, that's where you hear all the horror stories where the government is mismanaging things and government enterprises go bankrupt, they have to get bailed out, they're just like a, a shell company. Um, so I, the, the, the question for me was the lasting impacts of what we were doing around forest land allocation. The thing that I was interested in is what now? So when you give people land, the question always becomes, what now? Um, what do people do with the land? And how do they live a, a fulfilling life on the land? Now that you give them all this freedom, I think freedom is actually, now that I'm, every day I get older, I think increasingly I have adopted this view that freedom is actually a burden. Um, <laughs> people think it's, it's a glorious thing, right? But the fact and re the reality of freedom is it's a burden. I think that's why people choose to become either an employee or they become, they, they would rather live subservient to something. I think that's why dictatorships are allowed to exist because most humans don't understand that freedom is, is a burden. You know, you have to take full responsibility for your choices. And you see that very clearly in, in agrarian societies is, um, when you don't have any other forces that are going to give you a social network, what are you going to do to make things meet? And I think that one of the things I saw was in the, the work that I was doing, you know, it could take one season for everything to change. Um, someone's son can go into like gambling problems and you lose your land and now the whole family is now all of a sudden subject to poverty. Um, one Chinese company will come in, set one small like processing facility for, for cassava and the entire region will, 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 will grow cassava and then destroy the mountains. Um, you know, all types of things. And I thought it was so sad because the, the, the rate at which Vietnam changes is so quickly. I think it's a good and a bad thing. People's quality of life is improving tremendously, but we're losing so many things so quickly. And I think when people are, are so thirsty for new things, you tend to quickly forget what you have now. And when you lose certain things in the now, some, some things are not replaceable. Um, so for example, biodiversity. Um, so my thought was, how do we create a system that now that people have land and we're, we're sitting on, we're working in these communities with such a rich history, um, you know, of agrarian lifestyle, community of culture, the reason why people transition from that is they see or they are told that that no longer has value in the modern society. Mm -hmm. And I thought that I think that is so sad because that erodes at the fundamental core of who we are as Vietnamese people. So my thesis was, how do we create something that can be used as a case study on how we can build something meaningful that brings pride to the Vietnamese community and can create economic livelihoods? Um, based on what we have now. And then how can we, from that, as a, as, a, as a community, when that is stabilized, how can we make the conscious decision? Because cultures have to develop. I'm not a type of person who thinks that everything is a museum where, you know, you're not allowed to change because that's against tradition. I'm not that kind of traditionalist. What I am is, I think cultures have to change and we're always changing. But I think the question is who and why? 
who gets to decide that change and why? I think when we as a community say that, yes, we want to change in this way because we wanted to, and it's a conscious decision, I'm all for it. Um, but when we're just being swept, you know, Zokwundi and all that kind of stuff, I think that's when I get very sentimental and, uh, and I get like, are we really thinking this through kind of thing? Because I've seen communities where everything changes. Like, you know, the Hmong community, like for example, uh, one of the, the, the cultural dishes is uh, man man, which is this cornmeal essentially, because they traditionally didn't eat rice. They, you know, the Hmong ate corn. Um, but when the traditional corn was eroded for other types of crops um, and those corn seeds will go bad, how, who will give you those corn seeds back, you know? And that dish will erode with that. And with that dish eroding, there goes your, 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 your culture. traditional culture. Because yeah. now you're eating rice and you didn't eat rice before. You know, those things, that's just one example wow. of the many things I saw. Um, so I started off actually trying to sell spices and selling spices is tough business. And one night I was sitting in a village in Simakai. Um, Simakai is a part of Laokai province. And we were distilling alcohol. And, and I thought all of a sudden, holy crap, it's sitting in front of me. It's like alcohol is traditionally one of the best ways to add value to agricultural products. Um, and that's where the idea started. And um, it originally started to be what the original idea was to become a whiskey company um, because I was so fascinated with grains because grains are the bedrock of Vietnam. You know, rice is in everything. When we say, did you eat yet? It's uncommon. It's literally, did you eat rice yet? You know, um, so I think that was the original idea, but, but gin started off as a way to enter the market quicker and to tell the story of all the different botanicals. So not just grains, but all the different fruits, herbs, uh, spices, and, um, you know, other ingredients that, that are important to people. And we made it, I made it a very conscious decision that we would only use botanicals that were native to Vietnam that also had a special meaning to uh, Vietnamese people in different communities. You know, we weren't going to take some sort of a, a French rose or some sort of a chamomile from, from China and then plant it in Vietnam and call it a Vietnamese botanical. I wanted to find this is what we traditionally did. Like if we were going to use chamomile, we're going to use the traditional chamomile from Tang Chi. If we're going to use, you know, bui, we're going to use the traditional bui from the Zian village, for example, that has been cultivated for generations by our people. And that was the mission. And we wanted to tell stories behind that um, and to make people proud. And I think that's, I think now we're starting to see some of the, 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 uh, the impacts of that, you know, and I think some of the farmers and communities we work with, they say, wow, like this is, people are very interested in what we do and it changes fundamentally people's perspective on themselves. And that's what makes me really proud. And I think, you know, when you have communities like some of the Red Zao communities that we work with, they said that we want to preserve this culture for our next generation. And when people actively say that, that makes me feel like we're doing something meaningful. Um, and that's what I want. And I think like, you know, when, when I have someone like, like you or other people in America say, wow, like I'm so proud of this, this brand in Vietnam. I didn't know this. Like that's the impact we want to have. We want to have like a brand that's connected to the community, the people and the culture um, that instills that sense of pride so that we can say to the rest of the world, like, you know, we are 
deserving to stand next to the Japanese gin brands, the, the Scottish gin brands or the, the Singaporean gin, brand, gin brands. Like no one's better than the other, but we, we, we are also proud of who we are. I think that's something that's lacking in the global field. And it's definitely something that's changing in the culinary aspect. So I think spirits is, is definitely, um, we, 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 we have to assert ourselves in that way. Okay, so there's rum, there's gin, there's vodka, there's uh, whiskey, there's um, rude. There's all of these different ones that potentially, I mean, like rum, right? Uh, Sugarcane and could all be done in Vietnam, but why gin? Gin was, uh, was basically going to give us the, the ability to touch upon biodiversity very, very impactfully. So with rum, you're talking, you know, sugarcane or molasses and yeast, um, essentially. Whereas here with gin, you're talking about wide ranging agricultural products. So for example, uh, we, we uh, this past year, um, because of the, the volume that we're able to sell now is we were making, you know, we can not only just support pomelo farmers, we can support different types of farmers growing all types of things. Um, so I think that's one of the, the benefits of gin is we're able to, to, to have a, a cast a wider net. Um, but that's also not to say that we're stopping at gin. I think one of the things that, that we realize that gin is not traditionally a, a Vietnamese drink. And I, and I realize that. I think the reason why we also chose gin is because it's an easy foot in the door. It's something that people understand on the outside looking in. Um, and I think once you have that recognition, um, and I think this is, this is something that's a, a double-edged sword in, in terms of Vietnamese culture, is my dad always taught me that, you know, we, we, Vietnamese people, we're, we're, we're very, uh, what you call is a hiokai. A negative way to say that is we're also very singwai. Um, so what that means is oftentimes we need the, the, the recognition and the, uh, um, the kind of, uh, the kind of, uh, what do you call, it's, it's not just recognition, but the confirmation or the, 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 the kind of recognition of, um, of legitimacy from someone from the outside to say that, oh yeah, okay, that's okay, you know? Um, what I mean by that is once someone from the, the outside, from the from overseas community says, oh, that gin is great, then all of a sudden it's like, okay, okay, that's, it's okay to like that gin. Um, whereas if we were selling just to the Vietnamese community, to be frank, um, I think it would be much harder to get that kind of legitimacy um, around the work that we're doing. So once we've built this kind of repertoire now, uh, our step now is to actually start to build a truly Vietnamese product so our next product will be a, a type of Vietnamese alcohol called uh, Ziu Kai. <clears throat> and Ziu Kai is one of the um, main types of alcohol that's consumed in Vietnam and it's undistilled. So people will consider it very close to a sake or a maguli in, in Korea, but it is completely different in terms of flavor profile, fermentation style. Yes, it's still rice-based, um, but that's the next move that we want to do is we want to do something that's 100% Vietnamese from the bottle. We're not going to use a glass bottle. We're going to be using Vietnamese rice, Vietnamese um, yeast and fungus, all types of things. But this is this is this is kind of our ethos in a way. Um, so gin was a way not only for us to cast a wide net, but then also to to create something that is easily digestible um, to get people, you know, foot in the door for the next stuff. <clears throat> The gin was the Trojan horse to the outside yeah. world. Yes, essentially. Yeah. It was. 
so the zilkai is like you know like if you're eating gum nap or whatever it's sort of like it's kind of like uh that that comes from that right almost it's it's so zilkai is taking that further essentially so gum zio is is basically it's still mostly sugar and mostly lactic acid it is very small amounts of alcohol whereas you guys you start to transition all of that sugar into alcohol um and it becomes something that's more akin to a wine if you will so anywhere from you know 15 to even 17 abv um lower amounts of sugar so it's, it'll drink like a a a wine or maybe more accurately put like a sake the reason why I say wine is because the acidity of zilkai is much higher than sake. Sake, if you drink it, it's not very sour, right? Whereas wine is quite sour. We're somewhere in the middle. How, how do you get that acidity coming out of rice? Uh, well, the acidity coming out of rice is from uh, lactic acid fermentation, mostly. Um, so it's the same process that creates yogurt from milk. Um, and it's, it's these bacteria that's naturally occurring in the environment. And one of the things is Vietnam is a hot and humid climate. There's no way Vietnamese people could have made sake the way that the Japanese made sake because our climate doesn't, prohib uh, doesn't, doesn't allow it, essentially. You know, sake brewing in Japan mostly takes place over the wintertime, mm. where the temperatures are low enough where you can keep that fermentation, that acid fermentation, down to almost zero. Um, so I think that's 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 the thing that we we adhere to is we don't push any of our temperature down to what it wouldn't have been available to our our our, our predecessors, our um, our Tolpian essentially. Um, so because our temperatures are warmer, there's more lactic acid bacteria, lactobacillus, in the environment, and it converts more of the sugars to acid. Um, so we're 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 producing something that is higher in acidity that will drink more like a cousin between sake and a Chardonnay. And, and the, the Japanese uh, knowingly, um, I don't know if you know the history of it, but I'm curious that they, uh, de by design, lower the acidity rate of their sake? I, I don't know if by design. I do know that uh, with modern style sakes and with different styles of sakes like the Yamahai um, style of sake, they're, they're actually, the process of producing lactic acid in sake is actually something that's quite uh, uh, studied in the, in the brewing industry. Um, so there are people who are trying to, in the modern sake movement, increase the acidity actually, um, because uh, they find that it will pair more uh, with Western food. Um, but I don't think that people, uh, I would say that in the literature I've read of sake, there's definitely parameters to what people think is good tasting sake. However, I've not stumbled across anything where people knowingly reduce the acidity, um, through time. But I do know that with certain taste buds, for example, that the acidity should range from here to here, for example. I'm a big acidity person i like lemon i like limes in all of my vietnamese dishes i have to have it and just talking about this makes me so happy because you know it's like so we get acidity 
in something that's traditionally, you know, rice wine that's not acidic. And to find that happy medium between wine, uh, a Chardonnay and a, and a sake, that excite, excites me. And Zunep, Okamru um, is one of my favorite things to eat. Yes, absolutely. I'm excited. I'm so excited. But I do want to go back to the gin. Sure. Um, vodkas are flavored. Um, yep. Other things are, are now being flavored. But why, um, why gin? Because you said gin is not a traditionally part of the, the, the Vietnamese lexicon. It's not, it's not in our alcohol vocabulary, right? Why did we, well, you know, how is that uh, a decision that you, you came to? I'm not checking yeah. you. I'm just like asking. I'm just curious. No, it's, 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 it's completely, it's, it's a valid point. Cause I think um, there's, there's always a lot of external factors. I think with, with gin also is there's a gin boom in the, the Asia Pacific mm. region. I think also globally, the craft gin movement is exploding and people are using it as an avenue to talk about local terroir, local biodiversity. And that's one of the reasons why I thought it was also a much more digestible product is people are paying attention to gin more now. And I think that's, that's strategically why we made that decision. One of the reasons why we made that decision is we could have, we could have made an aquavit. An aquavit is, is very similar to gin. The only thing that really differentiates aquavit from gin is the use of juniper berries. Um, but no one's really drinking aquavit, you know? Um, you know, Anderson Cooper's family is drinking aquavit, <laughs> but other than that, I don't know who else is drinking aquavit. Um, I might ca catch some flack for that, but but in, in all fairness, and all you know, all kidding aside, uh, the gin movement uh, is is one of the a, a huge factor into why we did the way the things that we did because our goal was to have a Trojan horse, like you said, something that is digestible by people in Vietnam and overseas. So they know what it is, and there's a lens for us to start telling and introducing and getting all that Vietnamese culture and story in the door. That's that's why we need something strategic. You um, brought up a, a a term that uh, I, I want to kind of clarify and, and dig into. Uh, you yeah. said, I think it, you just said local terroir. Yeah. Can you can you tell me about that? T tell me about the idea of what that means. Sure. So in wine, for example, we a lot of aficionados and sommeliers uh, talk about terroir um, and, and how the terroir impacts the grape and how the grape then impacts the wine. Um, and we, we talk a lot about a concept called ethnobotany. Um, and ethnobotany and terroir are very similar. And what that means is uh, when you're looking at an agricultural product or a product of any region specifically, um, Let's take the example that people maybe know more clearly is, is wine. You can take a Chardonnay grape and make it into wine in the south of France, or you can make it in Napa Valley. And the two products will be completely different. And the reason being is terroir. It can be the same, it can be the same variety of grape, but the idea of terroir says, other than the variety of grape, other factors that influence the end, the end product include uh, climate, include where it's grown, so the soil, include the people who tend to it, include the culture associated with those people, um, and, 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 and those other external factors. 
And Ethel Botany goes even further in saying that, you know, we're we're very interested in the relationship between people and those agricultural products. You know, that, that relationship can be spiritual, it can be communal, it can be political, things like that. And those also are another factor that influence the end product. Um, so that's when we're talking about terroir. So for example, uh, let's say with, uh, with the gin, we're talking about pomelos. Pomelos, so we use pomelos in the gin. So why a specific type of pomelo, for example? Why is it the Zian pomelo and not say the, the Namzai or, or some sort of grapefruit from, from, from uh, Malfi, Italy, for example? Um, well, because of terroir. So we look at the, the, the you know, yes, does, it, does the pomelo smell and taste great? Of course, that's a factor. But the reason why, and this is, I'll use the pomelo as a snapshot for, um, I'll use two botanicals to, to explain the, 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 the idea of terroir and ethnobotany is, um, so yeah, the pomelo, for example, we're interested in why does that pomelo taste the way it does where it's grown. So in the Zian region, it is actually mostly alluvial uh, deposits. Alluvial deposits being high in organic matter, so the soil. So what that means is when you think about the soil, you may think of sand. But when you think of loamy, very heavy alluvial deposits, you think of more stuff like clay, hmm. you know, hard, compact, you know, shallow roots. Um, it's the stuff that, you know, you'd run around in, in, you know, when it's raining and your parents would get really mad at you because the mud is stuck to your, your, your genes, you know. Um, but on the flip side, it is heavy in nutrients as opposed to sand. So it produces a very rich, sweet product. So the Zian pomelo is the, one of the two sweetest pomelos in Vietnam, by far. Um, and this is the impact of terroir, where it's grown, the species, the way that people tend to it, and the fact that the North has seasons of four different seasons, um, and, the, and the, the tradition of that entire village being known to just grow pomelos. And in Vietnam, you know, when one village is good at something, they all do the same thing. If you're known for pomelos, you're only doing pomelos. It's not like, you know, Western Nintendo where you can have everybody doing all the different types of things. It's like, no, that whole village is just doing pomelos. So that, that entire history and the, the way that people, people are growing pomelos from trees that are older than I am. There are certain trees that are 40, 50 years old. And that is the impact when an entire village's history and heritage is tied to pomelos. And I think that's such a rich and amazing story um, when you're talking to farmers where their parents and their parents' parents handed those trees down to them. I feel like that's, there's such a responsibility to continue that lineage. With modernization, people are chopping down the trees to build apartments. Um, anyways, that's one, right? Taking that step, a step further, right? We're talking about uh, one other botanical we use called makmut, which is Clausina indica. It's a citrus-related fruit that grows in the mountains of Vietnam. There's all types of Clausina indica. We use a variety that's actually uh, only found in the Northwest. And with the native tribes there, like the Nu and the uh, the Hmong and the uh, uh, tribes in, like, say, the Simagai region, for example. We look at uh, what botanicals are, are uniquely important to these communities, and they use this, this fruit for medicine, for seasoning, and just to preserve so you have a source of vitamins through the, the, the cold season. Um, 
And when we use this, this, this botanical, we'll actually process it in the way that local communities do it to pay homage to that. And we'll actually pay farmers to even process the goods. So they don't use the fresh fruit, but they'll actually sun dry it. So we don't machine dry anything, we sun dry because that'll give you a different flavor. So that's also another way that terroir or even ethnobotany impacts uh, a product is making that distinction with the people who are tending your crops and how they would treat the, the, the botanicals. So that's, that's why the, the idea of terroir is so important as opposed to us going in there and saying, hey, this pomelo is sweet, we're gonna take it and kind of remove it from the context entirely. We as a people in the US have our whole context of Vietnam have been removed from us. When you yeah. think about it, what you just said, the history of like none of us are thinking about the clay and how it affects the flavors that we eat and the pride of being Vietnamese. When we say we're proud of being Vietnamese, or when I was saying that when I was 17 or 19 and getting tattoos of Vietnam, what was I proud of? What do we, what do, what did we know? You know, what did the, the, the sons and daughters of Vietnam really know in the eighties and the nineties, you know, what, what we didn't know that there were these very specific flavors, trees that were older than us that existed you know and there these are markers that are being destroyed i think every day in vietnam now and being lost to our our heritage i i completely agree and i think it's 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 sad but i also think that the the emotions and that that willingness to to define and to have those statements of being proud to vietnam proud to be vietnamese i, I think like in, in you know uh, middle school, there was the whole Viet Pride, Asian Pride thing, you know, everyone has an AOL account, like Asian Boy Pride, like AAO, whatever, you know, I think it, it doesn't diminish from that. I think that, that 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 emotion is still very authentic and it's still very real and it's a product of our environment. Like if you, if you think about it, that feeling or that statement of Viet, Vietnam Pride or Viet Pride, you can look at that as a fruit that is a part of this terroir, a product of this terroir, in which we grew up um, in California, for example, you know, being removed from the homeland, growing up in a place where there is a lot of contradictions. Like I think uh, growing up Vietnamese in a predominant, in an American society where we're not the majority anymore and dealing with these, 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 these micro conflicts and things like that, how to navigate being Vietnamese in America, for example, and then when do you become American as opposed to Vietnamese? All those kinds of things produces, that is our terroir, essentially. So I Cultural think- terroir. Exactly. And I think um, I think that's something that is, is becoming a part of the Vietnamese fabric, um, whether you live in Vietnam or not. I think that still is authentically Vietnamese to me. Um, but I think like the, the things that we're doing here is I think that one of the things that I hope to do with some guys too, to, to create that avenue for people who, who want to, to learn about that and to become proud in different ways um, about Vietnam and to, to spark that kind of uh, curiosity for the next generation or for people who are removed from the homeland and saying, you know, there is so much depth to where we come from and it's no longer just a war. It's no longer just a forbidden place that we're not allowed to go to. 
but there's so much insane just yeah I've, I've, I've been fortunate to live here for 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 five to six years now and I feel like every single day I undergo a new existential crisis of not understanding what it means to be Vietnamese because every day I understand more about how little I understand of Vietnam um, but it doesn't mean that we are not Vietnamese. It doesn't diminish our Vietnamese-ness. It just means that we have so much to learn about what we have now so that we can better inform where we go in the future. That's, that's I think, the, the journey in which some guy is engaged in with the entire Vietnamese community, diaspora, and in the homeland. So I want to talk about two more um, aspects of what you do with the gin. The, sure. The aromatic profiles is is um something that uh, i wonder i'm curious about uh who's on the end of the the tasting and and the dictating of its profile and 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 who's giving it the a little more of this a little bit more of that right so do you have is it in you is is this ability uh of choosing the profile is something that you've studied or is it handed off to somebody else? That's the first question. And the other question is similar, but it's more of the aesthetic profile of the brand. Yeah. So in terms of the flavor profile, the aromatic profile, so that's 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 through me. So I create all the recipes um, that that are released um, and also not released. Um, and this is interesting because because uh, we just had. I just had an interview yesterday asking the same question. Um, so in terms of developing the flavor profile for, for some guy, I wanted to create something that was uniquely Vietnamese. Meaning how, how do we create a flavor profile that is representative of the principles of Vietnamese approach to flavor and aroma? Um, in the food science world, uh, there's been a lot of research around cuisine, aromas, and flavors, and, and flavor pairing theory. And there's, there's a lot of different theories, but the prevailing theory is there's a huge difference between the West and the East. And they talk about it in terms of congruent and complementary flavor pairings. Um, so when people, and they did this in a way that they databased all different types of uh, predominant recipes in different regions of the world and the predominant recipes and the, the amount of ingredients, what ingredients were in them, and what flavor compounds were in all the, the, the ingredients, and they mapped it out. And what they found was, say, like, for example, French cuisine, as opposed to Asian cuisine. Um, here is mostly East, Southeast Asian. So we're not talking about South Asia or, 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 or say, like, Russia, for example. Mm -hmm. um, the amount of flavor compounds in a French dish was not anywhere compared to an East Asian dish. What that meant was our, and, and what they found was our approach to flavor pairing is in, 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 in Asian food and Southeast Asian food is complementary, not congruent. So what that means is in, in the French cuisine, you can go to a steakhouse, you can go to um, a boucherie or something like that. Um, you can get foie gras, uh, serve a bed of creamy, uh, you know, uh, pureed potatoes, for example. So it's basically cream on cream. So cream flavor profile amplifying other creamy flavor profile, right? Whereas in Vietnamese, you would call that nghe, 
right? Our concept is nay. You eat that and it's like, oh, that's too nay. You have to cut it with something. You have to cut it with acidity. There you go. When you're talking about your love for acidity, I automatically thought that our, our approach to acidity is we always have to have something to, to lift, right? The use of fresh herbs is also the same thing. When you're eating or and you have to have that is also complementary, right? Whereas you can take eggs, right? In the French tradition or in the American tradition, you put butter and milk in there and you whip it up so it's more richness on top of richness. Whereas we, our instinct is you put dalzam in there. Whereas when you're making chungdu, uh, which is also another egg dish, I would say it's our version of the frittata, you're putting dill. Uh, in the North, they put dill in there. And that again is a it's a complementary flavor profile that cut the richness of egg. Um, uh, that's that's one. And the other that I gained a lot of inspiration from was around our approach to medicine. Um, so a lot of people think of Vietnamese medicine as thuk bak, which is not true. We have also thuk nam. So when we talk about the history of Vietnam, it's, it's fascinating. And I, I actually think that this comes down to anthropology and, and, and linguistics because the, the, the Chinese word for Vietnamese people is run. But the, 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 the region of Vietnam is called Vietnam. So the, the, the word for Vietnamese people is the people from Vietnam, which is the, the, the southern third of China, essentially. It's, it's the south part of the, the southernmost mountain pass. Is, is, that the same as, is that the same as Yunnan? I, I think so. I call it Vietnam because that's what we call it in Vietnamese. But I think, it, yeah, I think it is Yunnan. I haven't used the well, because word. because my my wife's uh you know Taiwanese and I just now you know after ten years I just know that we are called Yunnan and then I saw a video clip of the same thing the second third you said the the, the bottom third of China was called Yunnan w way back in the day and so we are referred to as y Yunnan people yeah. but you you're pronouncing it um in a different way but that is the same probably synonymous with with this word. It, it is, it is. And, it's, and if you look at the, the, the way that people move and the, the, the transfer of culture and even the way that we eat is so closely much more related to the people of Yunnan than it is to the rest of China. Um, it's incredible. Um, so the reason why I bring this up is there's so much of our medicine that's actually mostly more related to what's going on in Yunnan than the rest of China. Whereas tukbak is this blanket term, but we really have to break it down because tuknam is, is more of what we call zanzan, and that is more of the Vietnamese people. Um, so I spent a lot of time with uh, medicine women and people in the field of these traditional medicine practices to see how they create tinctures. And tinctures is the way that we traditionally created medicine, whether it's a... a when you're all of a sudden you be boom and they have this this root that they make a tincture out of and you take a drink of it or you even in really extreme circumstances put it in your nose and just like you know it's like a, it's like a it's like a it's like a steam bath for your nose mm. um much more intense so all these things like what is traditionally because gin was was for a certain time traditionally considered medicinal um, and the way that Vietnamese approach alcohol that carries flavors or essence of botanicals is also supposed to be semi-medicinal. Um, so, and there's a lot of philosophy into approaching what makes something medicinal and what to pair it with. So 
our approach to using the different types of woods and roots in the gin is based off of my time with uh, specific medicine women. And when they created different tinctures and uh, different medicinal treatments um, for the community. Um, and this can be enjoyed leisurely. So it's no, it's no different from an Amaro in Italy. It's no different from bitters, um, but we just call it Ziotu. And so that's also another huge influence for me um, is, is this traditional uh, way of approaching alcohol and botanicals in Vietnam. We just don't have juniper, that's it. Um, so th those are the two things that really influenced me in terms of de developing the flavor profile and the aroma profile for some guys. So you have complementary flavor profiles, so not congruent. So you have spice with sweet, for example, because in Vietnam, we wouldn't just eat something that's sweet. Sweet things have to be accompanied with spice. You can talk about kẹo lạc or kẹo đậu phụ, right? You have to have ginger in there to cut the sweetness. Or oh my. Same, right, oh my, the oh same my. thing, right? Saltiness. Um, and and, and that, all... that goes back to the Vietnamese pride thing. For me, you know, um, these grandmothers gave me oh my when I was growing up and I loved it. I loved the, the um, orange peel, ginger. Sometimes they made it with a little bit of spice and it was yep. sugary. And it was yes. not too sugary because it had the tamarind in it. Ah, oh. yeah, right. Yeah, there was always in the old mines. There's always sour. Yeah. There was always sweet. There's always bitterness, right? Spice, licorice. The um, what do they call that? Um, come down, Yes, you know, Daniel. It it is so pleasurable talking to you about food because you truly understand the the. The, the background of, of all of this stuff, um, I'm blown away. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, I thought that I would always, I was always tuned into this stuff. I mean, tune in on a very natural layman's, you know, side. I, I'm very, I enjoy this stuff. I, I can taste it. I, I can experience it because I'm just very aware of these things. Um, but to talk to somebody like you who can really just, you know, licorice is gum tao and gum tao and it's just, to understand, you know, have somebody as a sounding board on the other side, you know, really yeah. break this science stuff down is is amazing. Absolutely amazing. Yeah. It's it's and it's always fun to talk to people who are interested in this because I think it's it's so when you start to pay attention to the details, it's so rich, right? Like I always I tell our staff all the time. So most of my staff are, are born in the 90s. Um, so they're even though they grew up in Vietnam, there's a detachment from the tradition still is when we're talking about the concept of sweet in Vietnamese culture is the, okay, so there's a, there's a new phenomena, right? Of, of the world is so captivated by umami. Um, so then the question then becomes, what is umami in Vietnamese? And my answer is not. Because when you talk about a pho broth being not, it's not not like sugar, it's right. not because of umami. Absolutely. Yes. And when you look at anthropology and, and you look at culinary anthropology and you read the older textbooks of food in Vietnam and the way it's talked about, almost always the concept of not refers to umami not, not sugar not. Because if you go back and you live in the rural countryside, rural, rural countryside, where you're not talking about where people have access to white sugar. Um, Sugar harvest is only once a year. 
So most people aren't putting sugar in everything. And you derive sweetness from umami, from simmering of bones, from you know, fermenting soy to, to thung and then nuk mum. You know, nuk mum has sweetness to it because of the umami. And I think that is such, because it changes our perspective of a, of a people to flavor development, flavor profile. So I think that's why none of our gins, well, except for the, the sweet uh, fruit, fruit flavor gin, but that's, that's going on another theory tangent in Vietnam, but none of our gins are overtly sweet. It's because we, as a Vietnamese people, aren't fixated by sweetness in terms of sugar sweetness. We're fixated in sweetness that's derived from cam thao. And that's why cam thao is in the gin to develop this perception of sweetness, but not from a sugary substance like fruit, but from glyceric acid in the, the, the cam thao. So that's, that's one of the, reasons, the ways that we develop, or I develop these is, is taking inspiration, trying to learn from the, our, our, our elders. And then the way I would do it, the way I develop recipes, I think of if my grandma was a gin distiller, how would she go about making this gin, essentially? Like with the, the, the mindset of a Vietnamese person in the modern context, how would we develop a gin that's truly us? You know, I can, I can read books on how, you know, the London dry gin is developed or how, you know, some other gin is developed, but that's not uniquely a Vietnamese approach. I didn't want to just take Vietnamese ingredients and make a gin and call it Vietnamese, but I want to make Vietnamese gin in terms of we use the ingredients, we process the ingredients in a Vietnamese way, and then we put them together in a Vietnamese way. Gin is just the Trojan horse, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what about the aesthetics of the brand? So the aesthetics, so this is very, very, very interesting. So the aesthetics, Nhung, um, so Nguyen Chang Nhung is our marketing and branding director. Uh, she should be on this 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 uh, this interview as well. Uh, I, I try to convince her to come, but she didn't want to. Uh, she'll see this later and maybe get upset about this. But um, so she's our marketing brand director, and she actually heads up and is in charge of being the guardian of the brand. So everything that was set up in terms of the brand guidelines um, and then developing and maturing that is is really in part of. Uh, her work and the thing around the, the the aesthetics that we wanted to do was again the aesthetics had to represent something uniquely Vietnamese so our front label is very minimalist um, it's very indicative of paying homage to our roots in the mountains of Vietnam um, the, the the first gin is an indigo label I actually have it on the desk here yeah there you go so it's an indigo label because everything in the north is dyed with a base of indigo. So you can have, um, you know, a brown shirt, but the base of that was indigo starting. Um, so that's paying homage directly to the Northwest Highlands where we started the brand. Um, the, the back label and all the artwork is actually, everything is done in the style of Hangzhou. And Hangzhou is one of three indigenous native uh, drawing art styles in Vietnam. And, and the thing that's crazy is there's only one last remaining artisan alive. Is, uh, his name is uh, Lady Nguyen. And he hasn't been able to find anyone to, to, to pass this on. And he's very old. Once he's gone, then everything will become museum artwork, essentially. So we, that was just natural. We, we, we had to do something like that to tell that story, to tell his story, and to try and preserve it while it's living, essentially, and build it. 
Um, so we're not in the, the, the business of making museums, but we, we worked and consulted with him on how can we bring Hangzhou, his lifeline, into something that's modern. And he, he, he consulted with us on these labels. And it goes into Vietnamese spirituality. So our first label here is actually, um, so Hangzhou is traditionally uh, was painted uh, for many reasons. Um, but it was most known uh, to be, so I actually live uh, right one block away from me. So I live on a street called Hang Mai. And the street, one block that way is Hang Chong. And Hang Chong was a street that they used to be the head, the, 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 the hub for trading these, these paintings. And Vietnamese people used to collect these paintings, especially during that, to decorate the family altar with. And they always were, were painted by, uh, with these, these elaborate uh, motifs of Vietnamese spirituality, of, uh, of Vietnamese life. Um, so the Vietnamese spirituality that's often depicted in Hangzhou is Dao Mo. Dao Mo is, this, the, is like the, the, it's the mother of spirituality. So this starts to get into to culture a little bit, but, and it's, I promise this all ties together somehow. Yeah. So guy, like why the name so guy? Um, and then also the whole dot mo theme. So guy, if 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 you know is is guy is um is is a female uh word. So guy is often uh you know when you talk about guy and look, right? So guy is female and look is male, but guy is also used to to talk about anything that's the largest or anything that's that the the most predominant or giver of life. So you know non guy you know, doing guy, you know, things like that. Um, and it's, it's essentially rooted in the fact that Vietnam as a civilization was matriarchal before the introduction of Confucianism by the Chinese, where we started to switch to patriarchy, um, where everything's passed down through the, the male side of the family. Um, and this is evident is because the spirituality in Vietnam before the introduction of Buddhism, before the introduction of Catholicism was Dao Mo. And Dao Mo is a, 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 a spirituality that worships mother beings. So there's four major uh, Bachuos. And the one that's on the back here is uh, a lady by the name of Bachuo Tukyang, is the forest goddess. And she's in charge of protecting the forest and is one of the giver of life to civilization. And so that's, that's the motif that we have on the back of this, this one. And he found it fitting to use the mother goddess um, as the first one, because we came from the Northwest Highlands as our starting point. Um, so all the, 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 the major jins that we've released still use the Hangzhou painting, but our goal now is to, from Hangzhou, is to work with other artists in Vietnam to tell their stories of that different art style, for example. Um, so that's, that's essentially the story behind the aesthetic is, um, other than making gin, you know, we're still trying to be proud of Vietnam is we realize that art is often overlooked. And as a bottle that's sitting on a bunch of shelves, like we thought the bottle is a perfect vessel um, to tell the story of art, you know. Um, and it being a, a, a transparent bottle, we would figure that all the other releases from then on, we're gonna try and use a different art style to tell and shed light on a different style uh, in Vietnam. So the next one, we're trying to find a, a more young style of art, for example. Who knew? Who knew alcohol would 
be so connected to so much story traditions uh, coming out of Vietnam. I mean, we always knew it. I mean, we drink whiskey and scotches and we we subscribe to their uh to their uh stories of of the Irish stories, the Scottish stories and we buy it. We buy into it. And where is our shit? Where is our stories, right? Absolutely. It's 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 completely that's what I, I would really hope to see maybe in a decade or so is like people who are geeking out about the Vietnamese heritage or story behind the spirits brand like they do with, you know, McAllen, like they do with, you know, like a uh, yeah. yeah, right. So I, I think that's that's something that I'm really, you know, hopeful for. And I think we're, we're going to get there. I think slowly but surely, I think we're going to get there. And I think it's it's a matter now of instilling pride in us first so that we can preserve what we have now so that we can make that conscious decision on how do we move forward. I think that's, that's the thing is like, when I think of like this Vietnam is at a crossroads, we are a young, but very rapidly changing community. When I see people like Lady Nguyen, who's, you know, in his late seventies, he's the only guy left. I, I, whatever I say, like, you're the only guy left that can draw this stuff. Like, you know, you need to have bodyguards, you know? You, you can't be driving, you know? You know? Get this man off the streets, you know? Or like what, and it's so, it's so sad. Like, I think like, it, he's only one example of our journey doing some guy. When we're trying to figure out how do we instill Vietnamese culture and identity into this product, into this brand, we come along more instances of things that have been long lost. And when I'm talking about long lost, I'm not talking about 50 years ago. I'm talking about in the last 10 years, lost because the last person passed away. When we come across that, it becomes a more, it builds that anxiety of like, we need to move faster. Like we wanted to do uh, the label out of a specific paper and the last remaining person of the village that knows how to do the specific paper out of oyster shells died like five years ago it's insane and no one wanted to continue the legacy no one was interested in it um and i'm not pointing fingers but i just think like as a young community and i'm saying as a whole community diaspora and in the in the motherland we, we, we we're, we're growing up so fast we're like in puberty yeah, you know? we, but, yeah. We're, we're dealing with k-pop yeah bts <laughs> We're dealing with this shit. I talk about this a lot. And to hear your side of the Vietnamese story, we need many, many more Daniels. We need to amplify. We need to get more because you're going to be that 70 year old guy yeah. who the young ones are going to be like, let's put that guy in a museum. You know, you're going to wear the robes and you're going to have the long beard and, you know, yeah. And, and and if we don't push for this cultural storytelling, we will be empty. We will be a vessel of our old selves, but projecting Korean, you know, content, K-pop. Yeah. We're going to not have things that are feeling like original Vietnamese. It's gone. It's gone. It's going and it's uh, leaving us. So we... We have to fight to to really preserve this stuff. Absolutely, and I think that's 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 a part of our plan. Like I think 
a lot of my time, my day nowadays, before I before I am allowed to travel overseas again, is we work a lot. I mean, my entire staff is so young, but we we, we focus so much time into uh, staff development, um, skills development, and then a lot of it is cultural. You know, uh, uh, there's so many things taken for granted. Like, I mean, like for example, there's so many styles of nukmam. There's so many styles, regionalities of nukmam. There's so many regionalities of film. And most people don't understand even the fundamentals of what that is. They just think it's, oh, yeah, it's just what, you, what comes in a bottle and you put it out and you, you jump. And that's people growing up in the motherland. So if that's what people are, are thinking of here, I can't even imagine, you know, because now I'm living here, it's like you become so removed. I look at my sister living in California. I can't even imagine what she would think of when you think of, like, what is fish sauce, you know? Um, does it, will that even translate to the generation after my sister, for example? So, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think we we there's a lot of work to be done, but it's it's fun. I think it's a labor of love, um, and I think that's what keeps it going. And I think that's what I think will will, will hopefully, in my mind, uh, help gravitate people help help people gravitate towards uh, people like you and people like uh, what we're trying to do with some guy. Because I think what you're doing is also exactly what we need is is shedding light on the community essentially. And this is what the community looks like. We're a very diverse group of people in all types of fields. And there's a part of being Vietnamese that you can carry with you everywhere you go. I think that's the thing that, that, that I always, I think uh, talk to a lot of uh, younger people about is being Vietnamese doesn't mean you gotta go back and you know work in a rice paddy or anything like that, wearing a straw conical hat. But I think you can be a doctor in a very Vietnamese way. You can still, you know, those things are not mutually exclusive. I think that's what we are tackling with with the fundamental question is how do we become Vietnamese in a modern era? And we have to do that consciously, not subconsciously being swept away in the current of things. Well, it, it, it goes back to these, these Irish distilleries or these um, stories, the whiskeys that we drink, that we grew up drinking, that we grew up enjoying um we now need to have our own because the flavor profiles are uniquely now i've learned so much in the last two hours with you it's we we it's there we just haven't as a as a group really uh i mean it's probably developing all over different corners in vietnam but we need to bring it up into the international level so we can so we can all enjoy this and and be a part of that experience just like the world is part of the the Irish and the Scottish experience with their alcohols. Absolutely. And it's all about legacy building. And this is the legacy we should be moving towards. Um, I believe, yes. Because I think like we have so much to offer the world. And I think the first step is we need to recognize that value ourselves and we need to do it ourselves as a community. And I think that's the only way we get there is if that happens. Um, and then that is happening, I believe. And I think that's that's we're on the cusp of something very exciting as a community. And we're, we're, we're coming, you know, into our adolescence and maturing quite well, I would say. You you said uh, the next thing you're, you're developing, I, I forget the name, is it Ziukai? Is that what the yeah. name? Okay. I hope that when you uh, get that out, that we can get back on and 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 really talk about the development of that uh, of that uh, drink, uh, I that alcohol. I I can't wait to to see it because I don't think that there's a, a bottled brand of that or not. Um, 
it's not on the marketplace, is it? Yeah, even in Vietnam, it's not branded. Um, generally speaking, these products, I mean, most alcohol in Vietnam is not branded anyways. It's mostly yep. moonshine. Um, you know, zero day is actually the term for moonshine anyways. Um, but yeah, it's not it's not branded in Vietnam, really. So it's it's not easy to find unless you have a, a hookup. And I think it's, it's a shame because when I first had it, I was like, wow, this is completely different from sake. It's the same ingredients. The way you make it is uniquely Vietnamese. Yeah, I can't wait. Daniel, yeah. thank you so much for today. It, uh, it was not just, I mean, I felt like the alcohol portion was just like a minute, but the, <laughs> the build up to the alcohol story was really the, the meat of the uh, of, 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 of our two hour session. Yeah, and I, I, I thanks for having me. Kenneth. I think this is actually uh, for me. I would say the most meaningful interview that we've we've done for some guys, because I think it's, it's, it's so getting into tune with the community and where we were we're really trying to, to speak to our, our audience is is this is our home base, you know, and where are we going as a, as a community? And I think that's to me, I think it's very, very, very heartfelt. You know, I think this is a great uh, opportunity. Thanks for, for, for having Thanks, me. Daniel. We will be in touch soon. And great. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran and Javier Proenza. Special thanks to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcasts. Thanks again for listening. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. A new year, time for new growth. Grow your education and skills with Herzing University. Our online behavioral health programs fit your schedule and time. From an eight-month diploma program in health and human services to a 36-month bachelor's in psychology. Grow your behavioral health career with us wherever you are in your education. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Visit us online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. Online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109.